I'm James Homan from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On. My guest this week is the former United States ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. I was eager to get her perspective on the Russian invasion. In this fight of tyranny over freedom, you know, the bigger picture is that if Vladimir Putin does prevail, the world is a less safe place for all of us. Yovanovitch was Washington's last confirmed ambassador to Kyiv, and she was there until being recalled on the orders of Donald Trump in 2019. That was one in a series of events that led to the former president's first impeachment. Ukrainians who preferred to play by the old corrupt rules sought to remove me. What continues to amaze me is that they found Americans willing to partner with them and working together They apparently succeeded in orchestrating the removal of a U.S. ambassador. Here's our conversation. Ambassador, thank you for joining us and congratulations on the publication of your new book. Thank you very much. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm eager to look back at that that experience from 2019, which uh, was, I guess, both a low point uh, of your career, but also a, a high point in terms of showing your principle and character. And uh, and obviously, you became a, a household name by testifying. But to start, I want to talk about this war that's going on in Ukraine. You know Ukraine very, very well as our former ambassador and, and as an expert on the region. And what has surprised you the most about the first few weeks uh, of this conflict Well, I I think there are a lot of things that, if not uh, out-and-out surprises, are surprising. One is the miscalculations, the many miscalculations that Vladimir Putin made. He obviously thought his military was in much better shape uh, than it turns out it is. He clearly underestimated the Ukrainian people to the point where he does not even believe they are a distinct and separate people from the Russian people. And so he, you know, kind of believed his own propaganda, believed his own lies, and did not understand that the Ukrainian people were going to resist mightily when an invader came to their lands, came into their homes, killed their children and their grandparents. The Ukrainian people are resisting and will continue to resist. And finally, I think Vladimir Putin underestimated the unity and the strength of the West. Uh, I think he, again, believed his own propaganda that we are somehow uh, corrupt, weak, Uh, weakened uh, countries that have seen our best days. And I think he's probably mightily surprised by the unity and the strength of the alliance, the the NATO alliance, as well as the the EU, in uh, supporting Ukraine and trying to deter Russia. What do you see as the end game here? This conflict has obviously gone on longer than Putin thought it would in terms of the kinetic conventional war. Uh, I mean, do you see a long-term stalemate? Where do you see this going? You know, it's 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 hard to know. Uh, what I hope is that the military successes that the Ukrainian military is demonstrating that they will continue and expand. And I think, you know, it's it's evident that they have good leadership, they have good morale, and they have good training, uh, in part thanks to the United States and other countries. And they also have good equipment and are getting more and more of it. I thought that 
uh, the billion-dollar package that President Biden announced. I mean, eight hundred million one day, two hundred million um, previously. Uh, <laughs> but you know, just for a shorthand, one billion. Um, I thought that that was a really important step in the right direction, because the Ukrainians are using what we are giving them to very good effect. And so let's keep it going. Let's keep on backfilling, because we want Ukraine to win, right? I mean, this was a war of choice by Vladimir Putin, where he invaded a peaceful country that was not provoking Russia. So that is that flies in, in the face of all of the norms of international behavior and cannot be allowed to stand. Uh, so, you know, in this fight of tyranny over freedom, you know, the bigger picture is that if Vladimir Putin does prevail, the world is a less safe place for all of us. Uh, it will be less prosperous, it will be less free, and it will certainly be less secure. Because Vladimir Putin has demonstrated over time that if he's not stopped, he's emboldened and he keeps on going. So, you know, of course, there was the war in Grozny in the late uh, 1990s, early 2000s, two wars, actually. And then... And then Syria. Syria. But Georgia in 2008, where he grabbed off chunks of Georgia, and we criticized that harshly. But, you know, criticism, you can live with that, right? Then criticism and sanctions from the West, but apparently it was not sufficiently persuasive to stop the expansionist ideas of Putin. And so he has continued in 2022. And if he's not stopped in Ukraine, it's my belief that he will continue. He has as much as told us that. What you're saying raises sort of two questions. The first is, in retrospect, should we have been doing more militarily to support Ukraine? Obviously, the government wasn't necessarily ready for our support in the distant past. But we we obviously have done a lot to train the Ukrainians and we've given them a lot. Is that something that we can learn from? Every situation, every crisis is unique, but um, one can still learn lessons from them. And I think, yes, we probably should have been more uh, robust in our assistance to Ukraine, our security assistance to Ukraine. There are these ongoing negotiations that are happening uh, in, in stops and starts, and it's hard to know how real they are uh, and how serious Putin is. You know, you hear about these humanitarian corridors one day and then the next day Russian forces are shelling them. And if there is a negotiated solution, how does it happen without Putin being emboldened? You know, if, if Zelensky agrees that Crimea can stay part of Russia, even though there's all these sanctions, how does that not embolden Putin to, in a couple of years, try to take another bite? And also, how do we trust anything that the Russians might say that they are agreeing to when they've proven so untrustworthy in violating the laws of war and various treaties and security guarantees and, and so forth? Yeah, that's a really good question. But the problem is, in situations like this, you don't get to negotiate with your friends. You have to negotiate with your adversary, not to say your enemy. And somehow you have to find the way, if not trust, at least find a way to agree on something and then put in measures to ensure that the agreement will be enforced. And, you know, that might involve the international community. I mean, we'll have to see, first of all, what kind of an agreement Russia and Ukraine come to. And I would just add that while I think it is a good thing that the Russians and the Ukrainians are talking, I don't think that at this point Vladimir Putin is serious. I mean, in the past, he's used 
negotiations as kind of a deflection from what is going on on the ground. And I think right now he's using it also to sort of regroup, resupply, and deflect. And I think he's hoping that he can change the facts on the ground so that he will be in a stronger negotiating position. That's what he's done in the past, just eaten up the time. We'll have to see uh, when he's going to be ready for serious negotiations. You you came to public consciousness in 2019 as part of the Ukraine affair. I, I don't know how we're what we're calling it. <laughs> the first impeachment. Uh, <laughs> impeachment and, classic, as some call it. Yeah, impeachment classic. Uh, over the last few weeks, I've thought back often to that July 25th, 2019 transcript. Trump, in that transcript of his first call with Zelensky right after that election in 2019, didn't know your name, but called you the woman and said you were bad news. And then Zelensky, who I think was trying to be solicitous to this American president, said he agreed 100 percent, but he didn't even have your name right. He called you Ivanovich. Zelensky, you know, to me in 2019 seemed like someone who, you know, he was a TV character turned president and even in the run-up to the invasion when he was chastising President Biden for warning that Russia was preparing to invade, he seemed like he might be a lightweight. But in my view, he's really risen to the moment. Uh, you know, he's given these inspiring speeches. I think it's he's made it harder for Europe to look away. What do you make of Zelensky? And do you think he's changed? Do you think he's grown into this role? Or do you think we underestimated him? I think he's probably grown into the role. He is nothing short of astounding in terms of not only reflecting the Ukrainian spirit, because he is, he's a democratically elected president who won by a landslide. He was very popular. And um, he is reflecting the people that he knows, not just from one part of Ukraine, but all of Ukraine. And he is at the same time uniting them and inspiring them, just as you said, and he is inspiring the world. For somebody, he, he is sort of gathering up all of his skills, uh, including his uh, amazing communication skills, and communicating with the world, and in some cases inspiring us to action, and in some cases shaming us to action. And I think, you know, he is the man of the moment, and leading Ukraine Brilliantly, I think. And and then beyond his communication skills, just his sheer courage in staying in Kyiv with, you know, the constant bombardments. Um, again, it's an inspiration to all of us. You still have many friends and former colleagues in Ukraine. What have you been hearing from them? Well, you know, it's, 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 it's heartbreaking, um, but they are so strong. Uh, they are, you know, when I express concerns, they are kind of holding me up and saying, don't worry, we are going to win. We just need you to help us, um, you know, help us get this no-fly zone, help us do this, help us do that. We will do the work. We just need um, your support uh, to, to, to get us there. They are very confident. And while it's clear that a month of war, I can't believe it's been a month, uh, a month of war is draining in many different ways, that um, they are they are going to keep on fighting. The last question I want to ask about the current war, and then I do want to talk about your great new book, is I mean, how much division is there in Ukraine still? Obviously, this is, you know, there's a rally around the flag effect with Zelensky, but it, it is a democracy. There were factions and competing 
political parties and, you know, there was obviously problems in very recent history with corruption inside Ukraine. But it, from the outside, it's still it it seems like everyone is very united behind Zelensky. How much internal division do you sense within Ukraine? Well, I'm not super close to it, but the sense I get is that everybody is rallying behind Zelensky. That was not the case when I was there in uh, late January, early February, where everybody seemed to be using the encirclement of uh, Ukraine by Russian troops as kind of a phantom a phantom war that probably wasn't really going to happen and using it for domestic political gain. But that has stopped. People are united against the common enemy, which is Russia. And I think Volodymyr Zelensky is in a very, very strong political position right now. We'll be right back after a short break. Let's talk about your new book. It's called Lessons from the Edge, uh, which details your rise through foreign service to become uh, ambassador to Kyrgyzstan and Armenia and then Ukraine. What made you want to be a a career diplomat in the first place? Well, it combined uh, two things. My interest in foreign affairs and national security issues uh, and my love of travel, but also the need I had to give back to the United States as an immigrant. I I wanted to make a difference and um, be in public service. That's how my parents raised me. my, My schools reinforced that. And... I chose to marry up my interests uh, with the desire to um, be a public servant. And so I chose the Foreign Service, uh, and happily, the the Foreign Service (laughs) chose me back. (laughs) And I've really been very fortunate to have an interesting career where I feel I was able to make a difference, both in policy issues and in people's lives. And I think that's all any of us want to do. I'm sure that's why you you um, started in journalism because we want to make a difference. Absolutely. What are some of the most misunderstood aspects of diplomacy at the working level? What what are things that we don't realize for those of us who have not been in the Foreign Service? Well, I think that a lot of people uh, believe that being a diplomat, certainly being an ambassador, is a very glamorous thing and that we go to cocktail parties. <laughs> there is some of that, but even, you know, the cocktail parties are their, their work because um, you are inviting, you know, you're not inviting your best friends. You're inviting, um, you know, the, the, the reception has a theme. I mean, it might be about... Uh, human rights on Human Rights Day or something like that, and you invite that community, plus others who who are supportive and others perhaps who are not, so that maybe they can learn a little bit or, um, you know, meet uh, people who have been victims. And you invite your government, um, your government interlocutors. And then secondly, I would often kind of give assignments. You know, these are the things we need to find out about. You know, these people are coming and, you know, there's this important issue before the United States, and we need to find out more about where country X stands on that issue. So it's very much a working event. And, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm an introvert. So the last thing I want to do is go to a big party. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was part of the job. And so I did it. So you, you know, fast forward, you have an incredibly successful career. Uh, then in 2016, Two years after Russia annexed Crimea, you're nominated by Barack Obama to be our ambassador to Ukraine. And then 
you're forced out of this position, the target of corrupt actors in both the United States and Ukraine. In 2019, you're the star witness uh, during that inquiry that led to Trump's impeachment. The State Department pressured you not to testify. What went into your decision and, and why do you believe it was the right choice? So many people in their professional careers have moments that aren't as high profile as this. Talk us through the thinking and the choice and how you ended up before uh, the, that House Intelligence Committee. Yeah. So important context is uh, the the perfect call that you referenced between Zelensky and uh, and President Trump, where President Trump said she's going to go through some things. Uh, now, I didn't know about that until, uh, you know, towards the end of September when the transcript was released. But, you know, when I saw that, when I read the transcript, I thought, what could this possibly mean? He's already pulled me out of Ukraine, ended my ambassadorship, his associates, have dragged me through the mud and smeared my good reputation. What more am I going to go through? And I wondered whether, you know, they would try to take my pension away from me, whether since they were alleging that I was corrupt and disloyal, that there would be some sort of an investigation or even charges brought against me. Because in the normal world, if a president wants to remove an ambassador, he just does it without <laughs> all of the attendant scandal and everything else. And that's what kind of tipped people off who were watching, uh, you know, the Ukraine account. They knew that something else was going on. So, you know, fast forward to September, I have to admit, I was worried that there was going to be retaliation. And I didn't know what that might look like. Uh, so I was very fortunate that a friend introduced me to brilliant lawyers who uh, were t willing to take my case pro bono. I was so fortunate. And they provided me with a lot of advice about, you know, all my concerns as well as legal advice and so forth. And over time, which was only actually <laughs> about a week uh, because everything was telescoped, I realized that I really had to testify. I, I, I felt that this was a constitutional process that it was not appropriate for the State Department or the White House to tell government employees not to testify. And in fact, some of the, the, the people behind this, like Secretary of State Pompeo, certainly had a different point of view about whether State Department people, including Hillary Clinton, should testify when he was in Congress. So I, you know, it, it felt to me this is a constitutional process. My greater loyalty is to the Constitution not to any one individual. And so in the end, it was almost like I had to testify. But uh, I will tell you, it was not an easy decision. And there were times when I was fearful. I can only imagine. As you sat down to write this book, uh, I assume you had time to kind of process. I, I love that word telescoped because that is really how it felt. Everything was moving so fast just from an observer's perspective. I can't imagine being in that cauldron and now we've obviously had the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which shows for people who may not have understood before why this all matters so much. What reflections have you had on the experience that have sort of sunk in and crystallized over the last two and a half years? You know, you're reliving all those experiences, not just once when you first write it, but then two, three, four, five, six times in the rewrites. So it was it was a difficult um, process. But in thinking about it, and of course, I wrote the book during the dark, darkest days of the pandemic, sort of from about, you know, the spring of 2020 
to uh, the summer of 2021. And during that time, we also had presidential elections in the United States. Uh, we had Donald Trump's refusal to accept uh, the results of those elections and, you know, all of the things that surrounded that, and then moving forward to the January 6th insurrection. And these were all actions or activities that I had seen abroad, but I had never thought that I would see them in the United States. And it was deeply unsettling to me. And so I explored a little bit the connection between the health of our democracy and the health of our foreign policy, because one really relies on the other. Because if we are strong and prosperous and free, we become the shining city on the hill, and that is our biggest strength. It's great that we have a strong military, it's great that we have a strong economy, but our values and how we live them is why uh, the U.S. is a beacon to much of the world. And we can reflect that in our diplomacy. And when we have a challenge in one, it's challenging for the other as well. January 6th was such a low point, and, and I do fear that it telegraphed to weakness and division to people like Putin. Uh, but I feel like the last month, the unified, relatively speaking, American response and working with our allies has, has done the opposite and shown that America may be a little late but can get its act together. Uh, and, and you know, the idea that America is back and, and working with our allies and, and everything like that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But I think that, you know, not to pick on a phrase you use, but America is back. Um, America needs to keep on being back yeah, and right. keep on, keep at it. Uh, you know, that George Schultz uh, saying that diplomacy is like tending a garden, that you need to pluck out the weeds and you need to fertilize the beautiful roses. That's what we need to do. We need to, you know, ring fence uh, or at least manage our adversaries and we need to nurture our allies. And um, that is the work every day that diplomats do around the world. And what you can see is that, especially with uh, the Biden administration coming in and putting an emphasis on this over, over the last year or so, you can see the results. That when the crisis came, and who knew that it would be this crisis, the West stood together. Yeah, no, I, I really do hope that this isn't just a blip. I like the analogy of tending the garden uh, because— I, I fear that in Beijing, they're watching all of this and just thinking, oh, this is just a, a, a few month blip in the larger decline of the West. And, and we have to show that that's not the case. Uh, you were the last confirmed U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. There have obviously been people in temporary roles. Obviously, right now, there's not you know a, a working embassy in Kiev, uh, although there are obviously still a lot of diplomacy and diplomatic efforts. How problematic is it that there isn't someone permanently confirmed for these jobs? There's so many jobs, including at, at Maine State, that are still vacant. Why is it important to have people in confirmed positions at, at the State Department? It absolutely is, because what it means is that everybody is doing two jobs, right? If there's no assistant secretary for Europe, uh, which there is, thankfully, um, the deputy has to do that job as, as well. And the thing about being confirmed by the Senate is that then the Senate also has a little bit of skin in the game. You know, you're not just the president's appointee. You've also been confirmed in a process that is actually enshrined in the Constitution. 
And, you know, senators ask questions and they, certainly when I was um, in one of my confirmation hearings, uh, you know, they kind of tasked me with doing certain things. They have a stake in it as well. And I think it's important to have that kind of credibility, both in Washington, but also abroad. We're talking on uh, Wednesday afternoon, and we've just learned uh, in the last few minutes that Madeleine Albright uh, has, has passed away. Uh, she was obviously Secretary of State. Uh, she was born in Prague, an, an immigrant who uh, lived the American dream. You mentioned your own immigrant background in helping explain why you got into public service. Your mother was born in Germany, your father in Siberia. Did you have a relationship with Madeleine Albright? And, and what kind of reflections do you have on, on her legacy and, and her passing? So I didn't really know Madeleine Albright when uh, she was at the department, but I have come to know her since then because she came out to Ukraine to visit and uh, here in Washington uh, as well. And she was kind enough, actually, to write uh, a blurb for the, the back jacket of, of, of the book, which was really generous of her. I think Madeleine Albright is a trailblazer. I mean, she was the first female secretary of state after, you know, 200 years. And she, you know, led the way in so many different areas. And that's important, I think, for all of us, but certainly for me as a young woman, to see that um, that a woman could be secretary of state was hugely important. Absolutely. Well, our thoughts go out to, to her whole family. Mm-hmm. Ambassador Yovanovitch, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your new book and your experiences in Ukraine. Thank you very much. President Biden announced plans on Thursday for the United States to take in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. The month-old war has forced more than 3.6 million people to flee. The United States, along with a group of seven nations in the European Union, also announced a new round of sanctions targeting more than 400 Russians, as Russian forces have stalled on the battlefield around Kyiv. Biden plans to visit neighboring Poland on Friday. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, with an in-studio assist this week from Rennie Svernovsky. This episode was edited by Allison Michaels and mixed by Veronica Simonetti. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Homan, and I'll be back next week because there's always more to say. <laughs>